Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Taping from an actual office. Glad to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, it is a time of great flux and great change in the film industry. News came down last week that Amazon was prepping a $9 billion offer for the storied studio MGM, uh, a move that would not only give the Prime Video Library an enormous boost, it would also give Amazon a 50% stake in James Bond and ownership of many other storied brands besides RoboCop, the Rocky slash Creed series, and uh, Legally Blonde, that's that's also in there. Um, the news came on heels of AT&T's announcement that it was spinning off HBO Max into its own entity with Discovery, uh, a move that would combine the powers of HBO, Adult Swim, HGTV, and Chip and Joanna Gaines, all under one roof, kind of. Um, and that news came with an interesting twist. Back in 2016, Disney inquired as to the availability of Warner Media as part of Bob Iger's acquisition spree that included buying up Lucasfilm and Marvel uh, and culminated in the purchase of 20th Century Fox. One could make a case that this is a dangerous instance of consolidation, I suppose, uh, and there's something to that. And But really, it just feels like the latest in a long line of moves. As friend of the pod, Richard Rushfield, put it in the Ankler, quote, uh, let us bow our heads to remember all those brave companies that came before them to our shores, arriving hale and hearty, full of Tinseltown dreams. Coming in like a lion to show us all how it's done and leaving some mid-single-digit number of years later. Broken, vanquished, spirits rendered asunder. While it's tens of billions of dollars later, uh, they caught the last train from the coast and fled as fast as they could. We speak your names. Vivendi, Seagram's, Coca-Cola, Gulf and Western, Decca, Matsushita, General Electric, the General Tire and Rubber Company, end quote. Um, the point being, look, all of this has happened before and it will all happen again. Granted, the battlefields are slightly different this time around, what with the rise of streaming and the increased importance of foreign markets, but still, this is a thing we've seen before. Uh, Peter, what do you think? Is this just more of the same or, or, or is there something different and more malignant this time around? I mean, in most ways, it's more of the same. The the, the form factor, uh, which is digital media and streaming and all of that is a little bit different. Um, but this is this is just this is a repeat of history in so many ways, which is that big, boring comp uh, companies that have a lot of money want to be associated with Hollywood because Hollywood is fun and interesting and sexy. And so they find ways to uh, to purchase that. And then with the Amazon deal in particular, um, you know, Amazon, of course, is already has a bunch of media properties. This uh, aligns with that. This gives them IP. I mean, RoboCop, you can easily imagine being a, a new franchise in a bunch of different ways uh, with the trend towards building a series that are not just uh, franchises that are not just movies, but also sort of have streaming television episodic arms, right? Like it's not that hard to imagine a whole universe built out of RoboCop. It's not that hard to imagine James Bond becoming something more than what we've seen for the last uh, decades, right? Within it's, what it's always been is just a new movie every couple of years. There's been some rights disputes where it got somewhat complicated in the 1980s, and there were even competing versions of Bond. But it's basically just been, oh, we get a new feature every two to five years. Um, and you can imagine somebody saying, look, this franchise, this IP is so popular, let's mine this more in the same way that Disney has done with Star Wars and the MCU and is trying to do with other things, including um, in, including uh, the, the Mighty Ducks. The Mighty I mean, Ducks. Right? Like everything is everything is, a, is an IP that can be exploited and built out. And that's, 
you know, that's uh, that's Hollywood. And that's to some extent just what we're going to see with all of these deals going forward is that it is a race for big, well-known, sellable IP that can be developed and turned into content because that's what people need. Is this backwards looking, Alyssa? Because I feel like, you know, we're mentioning a bunch of things that have been pretty thoroughly mined. RoboCop, for instance, three movies, uh, then a TV show that did not do very well, and then a reboot attempt a few years back with Michael Keaton and some uh, bland white guy who's Joel Kinnaman. Joel thank you. Kinnaman, uh, who's um, great in For All Mankind. No, I well, he, whatever. He's <laughs> he's like the Sam Worthington of RoboCop movies. Um, the uh, the anyway. Uh, the point is, the point is, the, we're talking about properties that are that are. Uh, I would. I, I, I mean, I, I, who knows what the future holds? But these are things that are not new and not exciting, and and feel like we are just kind of spinning wheels here. But they are familiar, and I think for Amazon, disclosure, obviously, that Jeff Bezos pays my salary, um, you know, Amazon is operating differently than a lot of these other companies. We've talked on this podcast quite a bit about how, you know, Disney, for example, has a bunch of subsidiary businesses that of which, you know, movies and television are one part. They have a theme park enterprise, they have a theatrical business, and now they have a quite successful streaming business. Um, Beyond that, I mean, Amazon's goal is just to keep you in their ecosystem in as many ways as possible forever, right? It's not even so much that they have different aspects of an entertainment ecosystem, but, you know, they have a they have a grocery store, they have a pharmacy, they have, you know, you can buy all sorts of other things. Um, you know, they own, do they own Pets.com at this point? I mean, Amazon. They certainly own a big pet supply right. Uh, division. I don't be- know that they own pets.com. It's that no, or WAG I... or something. Um, but, you know, for them, this is about spending $9 billion just so you don't spend like the fraction of your life that you might spend on James Bond or Legally Blonde or Robocop someplace else. It could also be about developing a lot of new content. But, you know, Amazon's business model broadly has been to lose money to keep your attention and your credit card in one place, to make things as easy as possible for you to stay put and not go somewhere else. And so, you know, when you look back at, I mean, in some ways it's useful to bring up 30 Rock for this discussion because that is very much a show about, you know, NBC being bought by GE and, you know, the sort of uneasy synthesis of a corporate executive who worked in like a physical retail space trying to handle creative, right? And this is just a radically different kind of corporate takeover that it's hard to talk about it in terms of past analogs or even in sort of contemporary, contemporaneous business models because Amazon just operates so differently from any other player in this space and approaches money and investments so differently than any other player in this space. I mean, you know, it's not like Bob Iger had a board, you know, ever had a board that was essentially willing to tolerate 20 years of losses in order to gain market share. Amazon just behaves so radically differently, not just because it is in so many different lines of business, but because it is set up to operate so distinctly from almost any other corporate enterprise, not just any other media company, that it's sort of hard to predict what they will do 
or what this means for them because it inevitably will be different. I think a key thing that you just said there is that they want you to not go somewhere else. And specifically, they want you to not go to Netflix, to Hulu, to the streaming services that they don't own. And they're willing to pay perhaps even a, even a not, an unprofitable amount to make sure that you are not leaving their ecosystem. Because what that does is it doesn't just keep you in the Amazon world and buying diapers and pet supplies and all the rest of the stuff that you, they want you to buy. What it does is it means that when we get to the inevitable crunch that we are already starting to, to feel on the budget, on the streaming budgets, right? That like, maybe you're going to say, actually, I'm going to cancel Netflix. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to cancel Hulu um, because the prime value, the prime bundle value is too too much right. for it, right? Like I can't, right. I'm there, not going to give that up. They want to be the thing that yeah. you don't give up versus Netflix or Hulu or Disney yeah. Plus even. And that's what this am, like what what all of this is geared towards I mean, this is not just this is not just buying that ip bezos also said uh within the last week or two that they're going to be substantially expanding their video production budget uh, to, uh beyond what it already was and so they're going to be spending i think it's something like 12 maybe even 14 billion i don't have the number right in front of me but they're going to be increasing that number quite a bit because they view this as a good way to keep people in their ecosystem and also yeah. to keep people from leaving it to go to other uh, competing services. Yeah. I mean, look, Netflix cannot offer you, you know, free overnight shipping on, you know, like extra diapers when you run out. Right. It's just it's I mean, it's almost weird that Amazon is in the video is in this space because it's just not the same proposition as anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is I, 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 I think I understand Peter's point, but I, I don't think anybody signs up for Amazon for the video service. Nobody, nobody, I, I think, is saying, like, I got to watch the boys. So I'm going to sign up for this hundred and fifty dollar a year service that will also get me my diapers overnight. Like, I think it's it's I would I would guess it's almost exclusively the other way around. So I think uh, that's I think that's almost right. I think you are right that very few people simply view Amazon Prime as a video service in the way that Netflix is a video service. At the same time, budgets are money is fungible and that means that when you are cut, when you are looking at your streaming budget for for any given month if you've got three $15 services, right? Or whatever, and one of them's Hulu and one of them's Netflix and the other one is Amazon Prime, and you're thinking I've got to cut one of these services. Am I going to cut the one that also that where the primary value isn't even the video? It's actually all the other benefits that I get yeah. from it. I think the best way to think of this is not that um, is not to look at it as Bezos looking ahead, Bezos and Amazon, since Bezos is no longer really running Amazon day to day in quite the same way that he was. It's not that they're looking ahead to the moment when you might be tempted to cut a streaming service. They're looking ahead to the day when they think Netflix and Hulu and Disney and all all the other, you know, Warner Media will be really sorry that they weren't snapped up as part of a larger bundle, right? Um, they're trying to get ahead of, you know, the next like metanational corporation. Um, I mean, in some sort of Kim Stanley Robin-esque way, a uh, Robinson-esque way. Um, I'd like I I think they are looking at a long game that is just so radically different from you know anything else that it's it's just impossible to guess what they'll do or what it will mean um, 
because they are looking at sort of two corporate generations ahead. I, I, no, I, I think that's right. I would just say, though, that one of the reasons they're looking that far ahead um, is because they think that their rivals are, they think that they can position themselves to still be around and still in business producing video if and when their rivals start to run into trouble. And the reason they can do that is because they're offering this huge benefits package for your $15 yeah. a month or whatever it is versus Netflix, which offers just video. Yeah. There's also a qualitative element to all of this. Uh, you know, I, I one, one thing I, I liked about Amazon Studios is that it was making it was making bets on smaller things, more interesting things, movies like Manchester by the Sea or Love and Friendship, the Whit Stillman Jane Austen adaptation. I mean, it was it was it was a it was an it was a big indie in a way. Um, and I mean, they explicitly the idea... talked about their uh, their internal process was let's make things that cannot get made anywhere else. Right. And now and now it's like, well, let's let's make uh, a new RoboCop crossed with Legally Blonde. What if Legally Blonde had to defend somebody from the RoboCop? Like, I, you know, I, They're like, also spending $450 million to make the first season of Lord of the Rings. Uh, it looks like something like $100 million um, to make uh, the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time series, which has already been renewed for season two. Uh, a, a lot of... They're, they're all, they are now in the race for the next Game of Thrones or Star Wars yeah. level property. I don't know. I just find that... I find that... Uh, slightly depressing i'm not i'm not i'm not sure you're wrong to feel that way um yeah i would just say that on the lord of the rings front they better deliver this is like the the amount of money that sounds terrible it sounds so bad i don't see there's no way that's going to be any good yeah i guess we're going to find out next year or whatever it comes out but um for the amount of money that they're spending, if they deliver and they have a 30-year multi-pronged franchise that, you know, has the success of a uh, of Star Wars, right? Which is not just nine movies, it's so much bigger than that, then it's totally worth it. And if they have something less than that, if they have uh, you know, a um even like something like a like a Tomb Raider level franchise, which has had a bunch of successful video games and a couple of movies, uh, you know, including uh, some reboots. Like it's it's probably not big enough for them, and they want and they think that Lord of the Rings has the built-in cachet, uh, you know, that uh, like enough built-in cachet that they can develop it, um, and that it like sort of has the promise of of spawning like a whole universe, basically an entire you know a mega business unto itself. Uh, in the way that Star Wars and Marvel have become. Um, it will be interesting to see if anybody making a bet that big up front can, can, can make it work. Because one of the things about Star Wars and Marvel and all of those bets were that they started a little, they started a little bit smaller. Yes, with some big-ish movies, especially in Marvel's case. But they didn't, Marvel's, you know, first, the first thing Marvel did was make an Iron Man movie. And then they made a Hulk movie that nobody likes. Um and it wasn't until they had had several hits in the can that they really pulled the trigger on Avengers and decided, hey, let's make this into a big universe that is going to generate billions and billions, not just, uh, you know, a, a $500 million movie every other year, but something much more than that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Uh, the controversy or controversy that the age of mergers uh, is upon us again, kind of. We've never really, never really exited it. Peter. Sorry. I want to hear what Alyssa has to say Alyssa. first. I'm going to make my decision based on what she says. I think it's 
controversial just because it's so unknown. Um, and we don't necessarily have a sense of how it's going to play out. So, yeah, it's potentially controversial. As Peter, big business deals go, it's not a controversy. But as art and entertainment go, it's a little bit of a controversy because these deals are, in fact, going to affect a huge number of uh, entertainment hours and dollars, right? The, the future of what we watch and think about and talk about is being decided by these big deals. And so in some sense, that's it. I don't know if it's controversial, but it matters. I uh, I don't think it's uh, I, I would say it's a non-troversy. I mostly just find it like mildly depressing is all I just find it. I find it like a slight slight. But I don't like I don't like consolidation in the sense that uh, I, I kind of prefer having all these different studios doing their own different weird things. And the bigger things get, the bigger all of their products need to be. And that's, you know, I, I feel like that's an untenable um, situation, except for the fact that that's what we're in. It's, it's all that's happening now. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and who doesn't enjoy this show, it's great. I keep telling you people. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, uh, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode where we use the new trailer for Chloe Zhao's Eternals as an excuse to bit of, do a bit of dream casting. Which indie directors uh, would we most likely most like to see tackle a big-budget comic book property in their style, not like the Marvel House style, where it's like, oh, everything is shot by B-Unit and the action, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and why? Um, and now on to the main event, Army of the Dead, Zack Snyder's overstuffed zombie opus that debuted on Netflix this weekend after a one-week run in theaters. I think it might still be in theaters, actually, but just, you know, if you if you really want to go see it in theaters, nobody seems to have, you can go do that. Um, the log line looks something like this. It's Ocean's Eleven during a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, directed by Zack Snyder. What more could you people possibly want? Uh, Dave Bautista stars as Scott Ward, who was in Vegas at the time of the outbreak. He's tasked with assembling a team uh, by casino magnate Bly Tanaka that can infiltrate Vegas, sneak through the zombie hordes, and retrieve $200 million in cash uh, from the bottom of his wind-style resort. Uh, included on the team are philosopher and circular saw aficionado Vanderho, uh, Lady Badass Maria, helicopter pilot Marianne, German safecracker Dieter, the zombie-killing social media star Mikey Guzman, uh, as well as Tanaka's hatchet man Martin and a corrupt internment camp guard Bert. There's some more people there. There's a ton of people in this movie. Um, but what's that about an internment camp? This is a zombie movie, so you have to expect some political commentary. And Army of the Dead delivers with an amusingly mixed metaphor. Government officials have seen on the zombie virus as an excuse to imprison political prisoners and illegal immigrants. Sean Spicer is briefly seen defending the policy, and we later learn that the fictional president uh, said nuking Las Vegas on the 4th of July would be, quote, pretty cool, end quote. Um, we could talk about that more in a minute. As to the movie itself, uh, I have some issues. It's, it's shot in this kind of weirdly distracting, shallow focus that kind of puts your eye all over the place, um, and it has the same problems that most Netflix originals have, namely that it's 10 to 15 percent too long um and it's overstuffed with subplots that bog down the fun but it is fun and it is funny the one complaint about army of the dead that i've seen pop up occasionally is that it's bereft of humor that it's dry and serious and too self-serious and i have no idea what movie these people were watching tignataro as the snarky helicopter pilot matthias matthias schweighoffer as the quirky safe cracker uh, who has never killed a zombie garrett dillahunt funny as always muttering about how zombie ti zombie tiger 
triggers are over the line. And then there's just like the very idea of a zombie in a cape wearing a bulletproof mask. is It's hilarious. The whole thing is delightfully over the top. If you're not chuckling to yourself throughout, I have a hard time believing you're paying attention to what's happening on the screen. Um, I also, just uh, on that whole cape thing, the, the whole thing feels like a sly comment on the superhero genre within which Snyder has been immersed for the last decade or so. By putting lead zombie Zeus in a mask and a cape and having human invaders attack his kingdom, uh, the case is even more explicit. The zombies here are the true heroes, folks. They work together. They have a community. They have rules and ethics. Humans? Uh, humans are little more than marauding assholes, oppressing and backstabbing each other. Um, if only they had a Zeus of their own to show them the way forward. Uh, maybe in a sequel, right, Alyssa? Maybe. Um, I thought this was an interesting movie in that my expectations of it were very shaped by the trailer. And then I ended up feeling like the movie itself was sort of far more personal and interesting in than I had expected. Um, I did not love it. Um, I also am not the target audience for something like Army of the Dead. Um, as listeners to this podcast know, I am not particularly a fan of super violent stuff. This is definitely more gross out than I tend to go for. Um, I said to Peter and Sonny after Peter and I saw this that I thought I deserved a lot of credit for not freaking out during the zombie C-section scene. Uh, <laughs> but it struck me, I think I would have liked this a little bit more if I had not gone into it expecting it to be almost purely comedic and found it to be what I thought to be a fairly striking meditation um, by Snyder on his daughter's death. Um, You know, this is a movie that sort of functionally reverses the role of father and daughter where... um, you know, the father is ultimately the one, you know, spoiler alert, sorry, where, you know, the father is the person who dies and his daughter is left behind with feelings of guilt and loneliness and abandonment and, you know, unresolved anger and questions um, at the parent who she no longer has access to. And to a certain extent that is paralleled in you know, the sort of zombie community itself where, um, you know, Garrett Dillon's character garrots what turns out to be and cuts the head off of a pregnant zombie. And, zombie queen. Yeah, pregnant zomb- zombie queen. Pregnant zombie queen. And it is not entirely clear whether that baby is going to survive or not. Um, it's, I mean, it's essentially, it ends up being a story about two grieving fathers, um, one of whom leaves a kid behind. Um and, you know, really kind of shattered, right? There's not necessarily a lot of resolution for um, Batista's character's daughter. Um, and it's not, I mean, I, I don't think it's bad that such a movie exists. In fact, it's, you know, sort of more interestingly personal in some ways than some of Snyder's other work. Um, but I definitely thought this was a situation where the sort of the very definitive tone of the only trailer we got for the movie kind of set expectations in a way that made watching the actual movie a little bit jarring for me. But it's not just the trailer. Yeah. It's also the opening credit sequence in particular, which is just jaunty and sort of uh, kind of funny over the top, right? It's, it is it is overtly comic in a way that the back half of the movie in particular drops 
I wouldn't say that there's no attempts at comedy in the last 40 minutes, but the movie becomes a much more self-serious thing um, in certainly in the third act, but really in the, the last half. It's not that there are not comic bits, right? You have the that great, one of the best gags in the movie is when they're trying to set off the traps in the hallway leading up to the safe that they're trying to crack and yep. they have to figure out how to get through them. And the way they do it is, oh, wait, we've got all of these zombie bodies that we can just send through right they just shuffle forward and like spring the traps and spring the traps it's actually great and that's the sort of thing that i wish this movie had had a lot more of actually are kind of bad taste but really quite clever zombie gags yeah and i think the the movie there's just a couple of those and every time we get one they work right so there's also that uh, it's not it's not quite as comic but it's in, there's a nice tense sequence where they are have where they have to sneak through a room or a hallway full of essentially frozen or sort of non-communicative hibernating yeah. Yeah. hibernating zombies and it's really quite tense and then of course it becomes even more uh, intense as as they wake up. And that's a great little bit because it plays with they're having to think about how to get through and get around zombie lore. But yeah. the movie doesn't have enough of those moments. And, and the final, uh, the third act and the final action sequence in particular, I just found kind of relentlessly boring. Um, it has some has some nice looking bits. Uh, because Snyder always has these great sort of slow motion speed ramped sequences where you see a hero doing something acrobatically interesting. But those sequences don't have much drama to them because yeah. it's just somebody sort of running through a room or sliding through something and doing, you know, doing something that sort of looks interesting. But there isn't like a, a kind of a plot to it. Right. There's yeah. no here's the barrier. Here's the here's the goal. Here's the problem that you have to solve. Here's how you get through it. They just kind of run through it. And, and like, here's how the characters, right. you know, yeah. the character development pays yeah. off. Yeah. And and I, I see I, I disagree with this I disagree with this in the sense that you you get several of those good moments so you get Vanderhoe being thrown into the safe by uh, the safe cracker um, uh, a nice reversal of the idea that you know he is there to protect the guy who can open the safe um, you have uh, you, you have the the you know uh, rapist guard getting his his comeuppance. Uh, later in the film, um, but it's I, so I, perfunctory. I, I, All of those payoffs, the, the, yeah, the payoffs well, that are there, are are telegraphed and not uh, uh, pretty early on, and are not. Um, they don't develop or twist them in any any way. And then there's so many payoffs that are just left on the table completely. The biggest and most obvious one is they walk into into zombie controlled Vegas and there's all these you know hibernating zombies, and somebody explains, well, you know, they wake up if it rains. And it never rains, it and never nothing rains. ever yeah. happens with that. And the movie is just filled with stuff like that, where there are these things that are set up for you to sort of expect some sort of twist, some sort of payoff, and the payoff doesn't doesn't ever really arrive because as the movie progresses, it becomes grimmer and more dour, and much more about this kind of familial relationship. And you mentioned the movies that it's based on, you know, sort of uh, that it's very Ocean's Eleven-y. It's also really, really. Um, borrows a lot from aliens and that there is there are so many beats that are lifted directly from aliens especially in the third act you've got the exact same uh dynamic with you know the ripley having to go back down to to rescue newt and she comes back up and the the ship the drop ship is gone except in this case it's not the drop ship it's tignotaro's helicopter it's the same thing as aliens except 
that all the beats are kind of perfunctory because we know they're coming because if you've seen aliens you can just tell that this movie is going to replay the aliens beats for you yeah yeah uh what do we what do we make of the political metaphors here i did i did find it vaguely amusing that people were complaining about sean spicer being in this film so there were there were some 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 rather pointed complaints on twitter.com shocker uh, about uh, Sean Spicer's appearance in this film, like how dare they, you know, give this horrible criminal uh, a a paid role in a big movie? And I just wanted to like grab these people and scream in their face. They make him look like a fascist idiot. Yeah. Like, are you are you so are you so uh, you know blinded by your hatred for like his actual visage, his actual face that you can't? see that they're that they are like making fun of him in the movie and making fun of his his boss in this movie that it it it, dro- it drove me a little bit crazy um but that said that said i do think it's i do think there's like an amusingly mixed idea at the heart of this that like the the government uses uh a public health crisis to crack down on illegal immigrants and political political malcontents like there's there's something that there's something very kind of this will work for both sides about it. Yeah, it's I mean it was interesting in the political stuff around the edges. The movie weirdly reminded me of Southland Tales in certain ways um in the sense that there is this sort of feverish sort of forward-looking hysteria and fatalism to it. Um and if anything, I wish that had been stranger and developed a little bit more fully because, you know, the idea of, I mean, that little scene about, you know, we're seeing the cable news coverage of the decision to nuke Vegas and then to do it on July 5th instead of July, or then to do it in July 3rd instead of July 4th, is like actually really funny and gets at a sort of... It's one of the many moments of humor. In yeah, the film. and it gets at this sort of bombastic streak in the American character and the way we celebrate July 4th. And and it's know, a good idea that you can imagine being better developed. Like there's a version yeah. of this movie that doesn't take place in Las Vegas at all. It's entirely just discussions in the White House about which day they're going to nuke, you know, like it's oh, all no, about sort of... the kind of policy stuff. And yes, I know I'm a nerd saying this, but there's a there's a funny version of like how would an idiot white house even a normal white house react to a, a localized containable zombie outbreak and no that I, stuff I, is all kind of shunted off to the side i actually disagree with you about that because i think that having it all of this stuff sort of constantly in the margins and having this sense that you're living through that the characters are living in a version of our own world but that's tweaked by like 30 degrees um, is actually both really funny and really effective and strange. And yeah. I mean, it, I it that whole sequence felt to me like the, you know, the ad with like the humping cars in Southland Tales, right? It's like something that is the American character uh, or a trait in American public life that's sort of taken to its logical extreme. And um, I I enjoyed the mixed metaphor in a weird way. I think that both this and Songbird um, have been kind of usefully hard. They have both movies have kind of reactionary streaks about the pandemic and the sort of potential misuse of government power, but they're also a little bit hard to categorize, right? Because in Songbird, the pandemic is sort of much more deadly and fast and fast moving. Um, 
And so you can sort of see the point of some of the provisions uh, that people, individuals and the government have taken. Here it's that the, that, you know, the zombie pandemic as construed by the government doesn't really exist at all, right? Like it's, if it only spreads by biting and it's not sort of a viral infection, then the whole thing is bunk and obviously can be misused and targeted in a certain way. And I think those sort of provocations are actually useful. And one of the things that bums me out about the current media environment is the fact that we don't have a bunch of people in theaters seeing this and arguing about it contemporaneously because it it is a useful provocation. It is a useful sort of scrambling of people's priors. And maybe it's just that these are priors that are too sensitive for people to kind of play with in art in this way. But, you know, as someone who has been pretty careful throughout the pandemic, who obviously believes that COVID-19 is real, um, you know, who's like had it in my family, um, you know, I... I think is a useful tweak and it comes at a time when, you know, you do have, when people's perceptions of what's safe to do and try out are kind of shifting. And yeah, I would have loved for 10 million people to have seen it in theaters this weekend. Well, but had like I, a big argument about it. Well, so it, it, you, you raise an interesting question, which is that I guarantee you more people saw this on Netflix by whatever metric. So who knows, you know, Netflix's metrics are notoriously kind of useless in, in yeah. the sense that they measure the first two minutes that anybody watched and they'll say, oh, 70 million people watched the first two minutes of Army of the Dead, right? That yeah. that might that might be a number that we see in the in the not too distant future, right? Yeah. But like uh, that's that's not a particularly useful number for how many people actually watched it, watched right. it, which is to say, you know, actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Um, we all saw it in theaters. All three of us separately, not not together. We we all saw it in 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 theaters. Uh, I saw it in a theater in Dallas, Texas, that had maybe eight people total in it, including me and my friend. Um, you guys said you saw it at the Angelica in uh, Fairfax, uh, and it had there were like five people. I believe there. I counted a total of five, including the two of us. So that was so. It was admittedly so not, a a daytime show on a Friday. Sure, sure, yep. but still, but the numbers the numbers bear this out. I mean, it grossed something like eight hundred thousand dollars on three hundred forty screens, or you know, whatever. The, my point here is that Netflix put it in theaters exclusively for a week ahead of its release, um, and it did no promotion for it. It told it did no advertising. When I asked. Netflix, if I could have a screening, uh, a screener link for this before the, the theatrical debut, they said, we're going to give out links closer to the Netflix debut. Um, so I actually went and saw it on the Thursday night ahead of my newsletter so I could write about it. Um, and and I I just find the com- Netflix's complete lack of interest in movie theaters, A, to be interesting, B, to be kind of depressing. Um, C, maybe it's just not even relevant, because like I said, I guarantee you more people saw this movie this weekend being on Netflix than ever would have in the actual movie theater. An R-rated two and a half hour zombie epic is not exactly, you know, screaming, this is going to gross $200 million opening weekend, even in the best of times. And we are not in the best of times. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe more people ended up seeing it. And we're still not really having that discussion, though, right, Alyssa? Yeah. I mean, is it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we don't know how much of it they watched. They, You know, we don't know how many of them got sort of turned off before we got to sort of the actual ideas and strangeness of it. Um and we just don't know how many people were watching it together. I actually have a column coming out later this week on 
the extent to which binge watching has kind of made us lonelier. Um, and I think both like this obviously is not the same thing as sort of television binge watching, but it is this sort of, you know, when you can see stuff in the luxury of your own home at any time, you just don't know where anyone else is in the viewing process. And because Netflix's statistics are garbage, you don't even have some sort of outside objective metric of how many other people have watched it. And so the disincentives to start a conversation are really high. And I mean, broadly, this is something I'm really struggling with as a critic. I don't know who I'm talking to about work at any given point. I don't know when, you know, even if I convince something to watch some somebody to watch something, I don't know when they're going to watch it. Um, and, you know, I, I miss fighting about pop culture on the internet. Like some of those fights were stupid. Some of them were based on, you know, obvious or deliberate misreadings or just you know, sort of textual illiteracy, uh, the, uh, the Sean Spicer thing. But it feels like it's really hard to have a good old-fashioned tussle over some of these movies, and it makes my job and my life less fun. You're on the internet right now. You can fight us. Um, no, I. So I. <sighs> well, I, there's a reason true. that I that I always greet you guys that I, it's by saying that I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends because I am. But I actually I want to ask both of you. If you think that this is going to start creating disincentives um, for filmmakers, you talked about the audience experience and the critic experience, Alyssa, but I yeah. wonder how Zack Snyder feels about this. We know that there are filmmakers out there who have said, look, I'm less enthused about working with Netflix because there's no public screening, because there's not going to be um, a theatrical uh, component or there's only going to be a minimal co theatrical component. Uh, mm. I, I also... You know, we don't know what kind of metrics the filmmakers are getting. Early on, the reports were that the filmmakers wouldn't get full details on who finished their movie, how you know how many people watched actually watched this thing all the way through. Now, there's some suggestion that some filmmakers are getting a bunch more access, but it's still totally unclear what's happening. And I guess I kind of wonder if you guys think that going forward, that's going to be a limitation for Netflix, which on the one hand will give people money to make whatever the hell they want to make and is clearly not giving people a lot of notes and not saying, hey, you got to cut your two and a half hour zombie movie down to a normal ass two hours. Uh, but they're also, you know, not providing the kind of feedback that that creative people like to have. I mean, we know this just as writers, like writers will be driven in some cases just by having a big platform, having a big audience and knowing that their thing is being read or seen by a lot of people. And I think in the case of Netflix, that's, it's not always the case. Yeah. No, and that, I think it's... that might end up affecting like who they can attract and the, and the talent they can attract and the kind of work product that they can produce. Yeah. I think it's super interesting and I don't actually know. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's uh, having having had some conversations with with creative types. The, do never underestimate the appeal of uh, somebody coming to you and saying, "I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars to do this thing." Yes, look, money is yeah. a big I, incentive, like, and Netflix it's, has it's, a lot of money. It's not, and and I don't even mean money in like in terms yes. of personal, you know, but money and creative, right, but, but yeah. just just like giving people to do a creative giving, project. giving giving Martin Scorsese two hundred million dollars to make The Irishman yep. is like not an insignificant thing, uh, and giving Zack Snyder two hundred million dollars to make um, Army of the Dead is not an insignificant thing. Like Netflix has the greatest resources of anybody on the planet right now, and as much as we might 
want them to be a little more hands-on in the in the shaping of how those creatives use that money i the the there is still you know um there's still a real draw there just to say here's here's a giant check to do whatever you want and i like i'm not uh, i am never going to kind of look at that and say oh well people are going to give that up because they want people to see it in a theater. And that's an, I, I mean, but you know, that's, that's something that Amazon can do if they want to as well. That's one of the reasons, you know, that's sort of. But Amazon, helps. I mean, is Amazon, is Amazon, Amazon any better Amazon, than Netflix? Amazon like, isn't doing that exactly right now, but they could, that's something that Apple could do. So it's not just, it's not just that Netflix is the only organization that in the world that is uh, positioned to do this if they want to. It, I believe Apple is, if I have not forgotten, um, Apple is funding Killers of the Flower Moon for yes. Uh, for Apple Martin and Scorsese, Paramount have right? a have um, a I think a you know joint and so there there are other companies that could step in and do this and they could perhaps uh, do other things as well. They, I mean, Amazon has been more uh, boosterish about the theatrical experience than Netflix has. Um, right has has actually said, look, we're just going to have our our awards contenders play in movie theaters like normal, um, like normal indie films, and they've that's been a thing that they have done, and I think. I think that the uh, the race to attract talent is going to end up being about money mostly because things are about money when you're trying to make a hundred million dollar projects. But also, it, there are going to be other things that other film that some filmmakers are going to be looking for. Well, and one thing yeah. to remember, you know, we old comparatively. There's going to be a generation of filmmakers who came up having watched this stuff on Netflix and on their that's phones. How you make movies? Yeah, on their phones because yeah. that's the screen they had. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, our, bad. our, you know, sort of doddering romanticization of the movie theater, it's like us and Chris Nolan and Tom Cruise are going to be like hanging out at the, you know, Hollywood home for old people being like, remember when kids? <laughs> so, mm. yeah, what what inspires filmmakers, especially a generation who's actually younger than us, may end up being sort of terrifying and depressing. And the lesson, the lesson of this conversation is that we should all hope to turn into zombies, but and be mercy killed by our kids before we see the future of movies coming. Yeah, seems like uh, a bad so what way we, to go. What do we? What do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Army of the Dead, Peter? This is a thumbs down, but maybe the highest up that I could give a thumbs down. And like I think it's a it's an arresting and interesting film that I think ultimately doesn't work. Peter, uh, Alyssa. Yeah, same. Thumbs uh, down. Thumbs up. You guys are both haters. You're haters. I'm going to tell Twitter to send angry angry messages at you, Zack Snyder fans, not to be trifled with there. Um, uh, okay, that's it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on indie directors. Uh, we would be amused to see Tackle, a big comic book movie. And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed once again. See you guys next week. 